All right, and we're live. Here we go. Oh, is not woo time yet? I, I mean, was that your woo? Well, it was going to be, and then you looked at me, so now I don't know if the podcast is starting. <laughs> we're recording, if can that's what you, you mean. Hear me? I can. Papa, can you hear me? <laughs> All right, this is our worst intro so oh, far. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> anyway, anyway, take it away, Dustin. All right, welcome to history according to Hollywood. There we go. That was an okay one. Okay, cool. All right. Cool. Uh, what are we talking about today? We are talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's right. 2019. Hard to believe those four years. I know. That's crazy. I feel like it just came out and because I hadn't watched it until this point. I was convinced that it was like a new-ish movie. Yeah, this is your first This is your first, first time watch. Oh, yeah. We imme- almost immediately had mine. I hadn't, I hadn't even, seen I'd seen the meme with like Leonardo DiCaprio in the, oh, whoop, whoop. In the sitting room. This is me. No, yeah, like the, the oh, point. Here I am. With no context. Really cool. I got some cool facts about that that scene. Okay. Uh, we'll get to that later. Um. So yeah, this was uh, this is uh Quentin Tarantino's ninth film. Nice. Um, it is the winner of two Oscars, including Best Supporting Actor for Brad Pitt. It was also nominated Best Picture and Best Director. Um. So obviously the critics liked it. The critics liked it. Well, it has like a like a 7.5 on IMDb, I think. Something along those lines. And it I, seems like a lot of these are sitting at like a 7.5, 8.5. Which like, is basically like really good but not great. Kind yeah. Of there's idea. also a lot like, of really bad movies on IMDb that are like a five star. And I'm like yeah. five out of ten. And then there's movies like Highlander that are like a bottom barrel seven and you watch and you're like, I don't know how, but okay. <laughs> All right. Whatever. I don't <laughs> there know. be only one and I guess it was this one. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like there's not a good, uh, ever since Rotten Tomatoes got kind of, you know, yeah. A little more political. I don't think there's a. I don't think there's a good solid way of looking up. Oh, is this a good movie or is this not? Because you just can't trust anybody. Just I'm watch mad. it and find out for yourself. That's a. That's that's my that's my life motto. Find out for yourself. Yeah, how's that worked for you? Just Great. Out of curiosity. <laughs> so fantastic. All right. All right. Um. <clears throat> so we open with a trailer for Bounty Law, a western starring Rick Dalton. Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio. Man, does this have a cast? Oh my Bro, god! Bro, wait till I know. another thing. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Um, I feel like this is a. You know how the Captain Crunch has the oops all berries. Yeah. I feel like this is a oops all Hollywood. Like I'm just. I'm so excited to talk about it this. It was impressive. It reminded me cast wise of Heat, the movie from the '90s that has like everybody from everybody. the '90s in it. Same mm-hmm. thing, and you didn't know it till you watched it. Yeah. Same thing with this movie. You're like, oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> like, yeah. Who isn't in this movie? There's a lot of there's a lot of times where I like to look at something and or I look at somebody and I'm like, ah, I know them. Who are they? And I have to look it up on IMDb and then I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember them from this movie. I think um, a, I think a sign of a good passion project is when like actors that can lock down leads end mm-hmm. up being supporting characters, mm-hmm. which happens in this movie a lot. Yeah. Which like, you know, the acting in this movie is awesome. Like I'll just go out, like they bring it more maybe more so than any other movie we've discussed. Like uh yeah uh really i think you know we talked about this being uh a double feature or brad pitt double feature and man brad pitt this this has to be one of his best acting roles yeah and because what i really like about this is that they're they're supposed to be real people yeah they're not really characters but they're real people who play characters right so there's so many different layers to each character i mean leonardo DiCaprio's character probably has the most depth yeah and has the biggest uh you know path in this movie uh but man i just brad pitt just 
kills it. I think Brad Pitt is the master because he kind of does this um, to a smaller degree in 12 Years a Slave. He became like later in his career, like he has become the master of really important supporting characters mm-hmm. with very little backstory mm-hmm. and just nailing it. Like well, just taking it at face value and then just yeah. like destroying the character in the best way. Like, well, he won an Oscar for it. Yeah. I mean, so, he, as he should have. Like, <laughs> 100%. Um, all right. So, Bounty Law is not a real Western at the time, but boy, late 60s, this was the time for Westerns. The two most, two of the most popular shows on cable or network television mm. were uh, Gunsmoke yeah. and uh, Bonanza. Well, didn't Gunsmoke run for like 20 seasons or something? Gunsmoke ran for a stupid amount of time. For like long enough that you can't recognize the leads at the end of the show if you found They look like different people. Also, it went from black and white to color. Oh, yeah. Um, which, I mean, multiple shows did. Gunsmoke wasn't the only one. But yeah, Gunsmoke ran for a long time, right. and I mean... But Gunsmoke ran for, like, a long time in black and white, and mm-hmm. then ran for a long time in color. Right. <laughs> so, anyone who... Uh, like, you can't understate the impact that these uh, Western shows had. There's an entire channel called INSP. It's on cable, and I worked in nursing homes, and let me tell you, man, it is on probably every other TV in the nursing home is, cha- is on this channel, and all they do is play westerns from this era. One of my dad's guilty pleasures when he got like real in his feels and nostalgic, would you just walk in and he'd be watching like the Rifleman or the Virginian mm-hmm. on that channel? Yeah. And you know, you're, why? you're just like, dad, you're not that old. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember watching, I even watched a little Gunsmoke and Bonanza when I was a kid because yeah. my grandparents watched it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a part of American culture. And I think that is, this is a movie that does it have a plot? you know i'm gonna say no like i'm just gonna go out and say no i think i think if you watch the second time you watch it you realize more of the plot because you can see you can see where the characters go again mostly rick dalton leonardo DiCaprio's character who's who we're following the most but there is a story to be told there but really i think this is this is a snapshot of uh american culture and the the late 60s hollywood um and that's that's really that's where that's where the little dream world that we live in for two and a half hours in this movie. Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead. I, I will say I'll preface what I just said and edit a little bit. I do. I did think there was a plot until mm-hmm. about from 20 minutes, like to the end of the movie, then to the end of the movie. Like the last 20 minutes, I was like, okay, never mind. There's no plot. Like no. I don't know what this is anymore. <laughs> it, I've given up. <laughs> doesn't this movie just make you want to move to Hollywood and and just be an actor? And smoke cigarettes and drink all the time. You know, maybe if it showed people who were happier doing that, but no, not not so much. You know, <laughs> they all seem like really sad humans, except for Sharon Tate. She's Sharon she Tate's happy. living her best. Uh, Sharon Tate's whole group is living her best life. Yep. Uh, you know, and I mean, I don't know. Rick Dalton has some issues, but Cliff seems pretty happy. Also, we should say Brad Pitt's character's name's Cliff. Yeah. We can't just keep going back and, and forth. You know, on... we'll, we'll get to that later in the podcast, yeah. but anybody in the know knows the irony of us saying Sharon Tate and her crew are living their best life. Uh, I have a quote for that later. Oh, good. All right, let's move on. Okay. Um, so CBS and NBC are mentioned early on. These networks use, essentially what the, the, where we start out is Rick Dalton is an aging star. He's past his prime, and these net, networks use aging stars as featured guests on their shows to boost ratings. Um, but Al Pacino comes in. Al Pacino is in this freaking movie and he's like a small character. Yeah. You know, whatever. No big deal. It's he's Al like Pacino. the, 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 the CD agent guy. Yeah. yeah. 
I honestly, is he his agent? I don't even know. Well, what, he's like, what he's is. a recruiter, right? Like, isn't he kind of like a recruiter agent for spaghetti westerns? Like, that's his whole. I think so. Yeah. 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 Okay. That makes sense, actually. Um, so anyways, um, he's convinced by Al Pacino that this is a way of putting him down. He is. And this this kind of brings up the first the first glimpse we get that uh, Rick Dalton's got just 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 a hint of insecurity uh, just, just throughout this film. Just a tiny bit. Just a bit. Um, so anyways, he's offered to star in Spaghetti Westerns, Italian movies depicting American Western genre. Um, I love I love Spaghetti Westerns, but I, they're not everybody's cup of tea. So he's yeah. like, originally, he's like, wow, man, Spaghetti Westerns suck. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to star in them. They're terrible. Well, um, it's, uh, isn't it part of the lead up is that he, he was a star, mm-hmm. but he's one of those stars that hops around a couple different movies and shows mm-hmm. and then lands nowhere. So he's, he's not the equivalent of like Leonardo DiCaprio, ironically, who plays right. him. He's more like maybe, maybe like a Miles Teller until very recently mm. or like an Austin Butler before Elvis. Like you recognize him. Who's in this movie. Yeah. yeah. And you know him. But he's not like your A-list. No, guy. he's not an A-list. Uh, yeah. So he's they're trying to be, he's kind of being used, like I said, to boost ratings. And actually, I'll just go ahead and skip to this. Um, one of the shows that he is featured in is called FBI. Uh, and the actual star that was in it was Burnt Reynolds. In nice. that in that specific episode, the episode that that Leonardo DiCaprio stars in. Okay, so the FBI show that Rick Dalton's guest stars in was a real show that ran from 1965 to 1974. The episode he stars in, called All the Streets Go Silent, originally stars Burnt Reynolds, and Tarantino actually recreated shots from the episode with Leonardo DiCaprio in it. And so I thought that was really interesting. Well, they did that with The Great Escape, too. We're kind of jumping all over the plot here, but like... The Great Escape is supposed to be an audition tape. Right. Where he auditioned, and then Steve McQueen eventually got the part, is that they CGI'd Leonardo DiCaprio into The Great Escape. Yeah, which is ironic because Steve McQueen does make like a six-minute appearance. In yeah, this he movie. does, and he kind of breaks down the love triangle between um, Sharon Tate, uh, Roman Polanski, and uh, Jay Sebring, which, which is one of the many confusing things in this movie. It is a little bit, um, but it's actually supposed to be true that Jay yeah. Sebring was in love with Sharon Tate, and he was one that, in real life, um, he was one that was murdered at the Tate residence. Yes, yes, he was. He gets he he gets kind of insecure about this. He kind of has a breakdown. They're driving around, and we come across the first of many hippies. Yep. Man, are there a lot of hippies in this movie? Pillaging a dumpster. Pillaging a freaking As dumpster. One does giving up peace signs. Oh yeah. Not shaving their armpits. Being noticeably underage and flirting with fifty-year-old men in cars. As you do. As one does. It's Brad Pitt. That okay. That's fair. Nah, that isn't fair. Now, if it was another fifty-year-old, okay. Yeah. Well, case in point, I mean, if they were flirting with, like, Leonardo DiCaprio in the car, you'd be like, okay, man, like, mm. may- maybe not. But Brad, Brad Pitt is jacked <laughs> in this movie. Okay. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, he's, what, Fight Club was in the 90s, oh, yeah. and he looks pretty much the same. He kind of, We'll talk about Troy next week, and he kind of looks like you took him out of Troy, you buried him in the sand for five years to make him look, like, coarse and wrinkled, <laughs> and then you just shook him off and put him in the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyways, um, we see our first hippies, and I have my first question for you, Kyle. This is a very broad, very general question. Okay. What does history say about the hippie movement? That is an excellent question because um, people can't really decide what history should say about the hippie movement. That being said, it was, generally speaking, a counterculture youth movement in the 60s. So um, 
to give a little historical like background, uh, the the idea of a teenager didn't exist until the 1950s, um, mm. and even then, you know, it was Elvis and it was rock and roll, but it was still like you dressed up to go places and you drove your Thunderbird car and you looked like nice when it at all possible. You worked at the factory after school. Yeah, you work your you work your full time job. You get your pension. Um, you're you're still part of society. You're just like a new part yeah. of it. Um, hippie counterculture is more of a rebellion is probably too strong of a word a pushback against that mm-hmm. and it's that you know um free living peaceful vibes um unlock your mind and hippie is just like an umbrella term so the hippies that we see in once upon a time in hollywood are kind of the extreme end mm-hmm. of like the hippie counterculture movement most people aren't quite that abrasive and quite that like drugged out of their mind all the time yeah as the hippies are but you'll find out why that's the case when we get a little further mm-hmm. into the movie so yeah um it's one of those weird things too where people were alive who were part of the hippie movement and they have very different opinions on it than the people who were alive who weren't part of the hippie movement but generally speaking it's a youth-based counterculture that instead of organized and nicely dressed and put together at nine to five it's you know hitchhiking and parties on the beach and bonfires and digging in trash for your next meal yeah so it's it's like a spiritual awakening is the is the concept i think now how much of this is fueled by the vietnam war that is a really interesting question um because hippie counterculture really kind of starts in in the same time as the vietnam war but whether or not it was a direct like relation to it Mm -hmm. i don't know i do know that the more that the government and part of the populace supports the Vietnam war and is like violence is the way that we uphold the social order and Mm -hmm. armed defense. The more the hippie movement grew because that's just how, how it goes. Case in point, the more the hippie movement grew, the more people pushed back and were like, no, you freewheeling crazy people. Like that's not how we should live. I mean, you know, (laughs) we have to have structure. We have to have order this, that, and the other. Boy, did they make some good music though? Yeah. And uh, the interesting thing is that the hippie movement was a global, movement really yeah it wasn't just american um Hmm. it was primarily in western europe and the united states but there were hippie movements in chile um there were hippie movements throughout south america so yeah it was it was a global counterculture movement but i think that media wise it's been focused in the u.s and britain just because uh it coincides with like psychedelic rock a lot i mean which yeah you know you take away the music is there a hippie movement I, yeah, uh, I, don't I don't know. It's hard to be a hippie listening to like Johnny B. Good, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, that's true. Okay, so we talked about earlier, like, is there a plot? Is there not a plot? So we're going to cover a lot of things. Um, and essentially, what happens in the film while we're covering these things is, uh, uh, uh they drive home, and then Rick, or and then Cliff gets in his car, and then he drives to his house. Mm. So, uh, we're really we're passing by Hollywood. We're seeing. Uh, we're seeing the the ritzy end of it. We're seeing the hippies walking barefoot across the street, and then we're seeing uh uh the back of a drive-in and some trailer where Cliff lives. Before we get too far, I almost forgot. It's mm-hmm. important to note that the movie takes place in 1969, and that is the peak of the hippie movement. Mm-hmm. Um, 1967 to like 1969 or 1970. I just double-checked yeah. my my notes. So it would not be uncommon to see hippies in anywhere but especially like big cities and especially cities Mm -hmm. on the west coast which just tend to be a little more like liberal minded 
than their East Coast counterparts. Like that's just how it how it's been for forever. So yeah, L.A. in 1969, there's going to be a lot of hippies for sure. I can imagine. Um, and then we're introduced to the real star of the movie, Cliff Booth's dog Brandy, hmm. who eats tanned raccoon and rat flavored dog food. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I didn't bother to look that up. I know that there were a lot of weird brands and a lot of weird like well, it says, advertising gimmicks. Yeah, it says on the can raccoon flavored, and another one says rat flavored. There's one more. I don't remember what the other one was. I would but be anyways. equally unsurprised if that was like a real thing that they researched, or if Quentin Tarantino just made it up. It was like this sounds like I don't know. a fun thing to feed a dog, you know? I don't know. So we mentioned earlier that there's Steve McQueen explains the love triangle. We have this long, drawn out party scene where essentially it's just Margot Robbie dancing around in a very bright yellow best part outfit. of the movie. Yeah, Kyle's Bad, favorite part of the movie. Best part of the movie. He watched it three times. I did not. I would watch that scene three times, but I did not. <laughs> no, watch no, the that's movie. what I mean. He kept he kept backing it up. There, watching there's it not again. enough Sharon Tate in this movie. That's all I'm gonna say. Uh, right. And uh, fun fact: there is the real Sharon Tate in this movie. Yeah, there is. Um, when she goes to the movie theater. Yes. Yeah. And also her jewelry. In that scene where oh. they're dancing, that is actually Sharon Tate's jewelry. <clears throat> I don't think it's her actual outfit, but it is. It is the um her sister, Sharon Tate's sister, gave. Well, I mean, lent the lent the movie or the production, uh, her sister's jewelry, and Margot Robbie's actually seen dancing around in it. That's really cool because I found out that the outfit that she wears when she goes and watches her own movie mm-hmm. later in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is an actual outfit. Maybe not the clothes themselves, mm-hmm. but it's like an actual outfit recreation of something that Sharon Tate wore mm-hmm. while starring in a different movie. Yeah, uh, that's. I mean, that's pretty. Yeah, they cool. really. I mean, they do their research, like clothing. Oh, hundred percent. Like, they, yeah, yeah. There's a reason that Tarantino's been making movies for you know, what almost thirty years now. Yeah, and he's uh only made nine of them. Yeah, he puts <laughs> he puts the work in. He puts the time I mean, in for sure. There's so many Easter eggs and so many little things in this. Um. Anyways, moving on to the next day, uh, we are on set. Randy from Green Hornet. <laughs> this is Kurt Russell, um, who also narrates the film. Yeah, he does. I, I got that about halfway through. I was like, oh my God, that's, that's Kurt, Kurt Russell. Russell. Yeah. Uh, so he, he's playing double duty here. Um, anyway, so I was so confused about the Jet Li, not Jet Li, sorry, Bruce Lee uh, cameo. Jet Li. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be confused too if Jet yeah, Li had no, a cameo that'd be, in that'd be, Yeah. Wait, hold on a second. No, the Bruce Lee cameo. Um, it's because they're shooting an episode of the Green Hornet. Yeah, and he's Kato. Yeah. So he yeah, yeah I, I didn't put those two together until mm, this time when I watched it. That's why I have the master's degree, baby. Well, we can't all Wikipedia like you, so Wow. <laughs> wow. I will have you know that I occasionally tap into better parts of Google. No. <laughs> yeah. All right. I even read a journal article last week. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Step up. It wasn't about this, but it was... Say, <laughs> say it with your chest, Dustin. What are you trying to tell me? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. So Cliff is accused of murdering his wife, um, and we have a little flashback. He's sitting there with this snorkel gear on. He has a spear gun sitting across his lap, and his wife is just nagging him, and he, is just, he just looks so dead. <laughs> he looks so just blank-faced. Like, kill me now. And at first you're like, this guy didn't murder his wife. Like, there's no way. And then the longer the movie goes on, the more you're like, I think he killed his wife. So <laughs> in the novel, this is also a novel. Oh, like, okay. So Tarantino made a novelization yeah. of this film. Uh, in the novel, it explains that he did, in fact, kill his wife. Oh, man. Uh, it's essentially an accident. Um, 
Like it happens. I get. I guess I haven't read it. I want to. I haven't gotten to it yet. But uh, essentially, the guns across his lap. His wife's nagging him, and he kind of accidentally pulls a trigger and shoots her. And he's accidentally, like, he's like crap, and just kind of has to go along with it. He didn't plan it, but it's just kind of kind of what happened. That's still murder one, man. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, anyways, very famous scene here of um, Bruce Lee. Uh, and Cliff having a little three round kind of playful um fight game. Yeah. Takedown game. Whatever I don't know, you want to throwing call it. a guy into a car is playful. He throws the guy into the car. It's hilarious. Well, and it's because also I just want to point out that I think that that was an excellent representation of young Bruce Lee. Like from everything mm-hmm. that I can understand, like Bruce Lee in his twenties was just a prick. Like he just I mean he was good. Like he was he was when, a great martial when no, artist. When no one can touch you, what but are that you was gonna his, do? And I don't you know, I don't know if he was actually like that, but his public persona was like, I can I can take anybody in a fight. Yeah. Like I don't care. And he's going on this rant about how like Cassius Clay is an excellent fighter because he fights with the will to kill, like if he mm-hmm. needs to, and he's drawing a comparison to himself. And he's like, and every other Kung Fu master in the world won't do that. But that's what I do yeah. when I go into the ring. And somebody finally asks, so what would happen if you met Cassius Clay? And he goes, well, that would never happen. We're two different fighting disciplines. And he goes, okay. But, you know, in theory, like, if that happened, what, what would happen? And he goes, well, I would, uh, I would defeat Cassius Clay. Like, I would wipe him from the floor or whatever. And Brad Pitt laughs. And it's important to note that Cassius Clay is the original name of Muhammad Ali. Right. Yes. So, yeah, that's Bruce Lee telling people that he would, he would he'd beat up he, Muhammad Ali. He could Ali. take Muhammad Ali in a fight. Well... And I don't know whether he could or he couldn't, but that is know. a bold that's claim. A bold, that's a bold Especially claim. Especially in 1969, because Muhammad Ali in the late 60s is terrible. I mean, he's terrifying his whole career, but... I can't see that going either way, in all honesty, because I feel like they're both skilled enough that they would be able to uh, avoid being attacked too hard, and I yeah. feel like they would just kind of get tired and be like, all right, this is pointless. Look, <laughs> um, so as a former second-degree black belt, I'm just telling you that you can you can deal with size differences for a little bit, and yeah. I think Bruce Lee was maybe one of the baddest men to like ever walk mm-hmm. the face of the earth. He just was. That being said, if he couldn't like cripplingly injure Muhammad Ali in the first couple seconds, mm. he is a dead man, because Muhammad Ali is just huge and very he's strong. He's got a, bit, a lot of size And if he got sure. a hold of him or got close yeah. enough to him to actually haymaker him, it'd be really bad. Yeah. Whether or not he could do that, I don't know. My money on this hypothetical fight that isn't even important for the plot of the movie that we just went on a tangent on, I'm putting my money on Cassius Clay, baby. Like, uh, I'm putting float them. like a butterfly, sting like a bee, bitch. <laughs> I, I would put it as a draw. I would, that's where I would put it. Okay. I know that's a that's a boring ass. We're gonna bet. have to contact the guys at Spike TV to like reamp <laughs> the world's like that greatest Rocky warriors. movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. All right. So, anyways, this is all really in a flashback, and uh, Cliff's on um Rick Dalton's roof fixing a satellite. Well, it's why he can't get the job as the stunt guy because he's, yeah, he's Rick's. Did we specify that he is Rick Dalton's stunt man? No, we did not. Okay, so to backpedal a little bit for a very important plot point that we somehow glossed over. That is in the very opening <laughs> that is, scene. That is incredibly <laughs> important for the entire movie. Um, we might as well have just told you a five minute snippet and then turned off the podcast. So uh, <laughs> Brad Pitt's character Cliff is the stunt double. Yeah, for Leonardo DiCaprio's character Rick Dalton. Yeah since the very beginning of Rick Dalton's successful part of his career, but he is paid usually by Rick Dalton, like out right. of Rick Dalton's own pocket or by the studio. So he's unemployed at the moment because Dalton is so down. So yeah, so he's basically, he's unemployed and instead he's fixing satellites on a roof. 
and that's when um, well, Margot Robbie's character dances in her house. I just felt like that was really important just for yeah. people to know. Well, while she's dancing in her house, little creepy Madee Charles Manson yeah, shows up. Little like dirty hobbit looking dude. Yeah. Dude, what a freaking weirdo! Right. Weird little hippie elf. Uh, so, anyways, Manson arrives at Tate's house looking for former residents Terry Melcher, who was a music producer popular for producing California rock albums in the sixties. Most famously, he produced a couple of the Birds early albums. Um, so anyways, if you don't know, Charles Manson was a singer and tried to break through into the rock scene and never did. Well, he was, I, if, if my research is correct, he, some of his songs were recorded by the Beach Boys and one of them even made it onto the B side of an album, but he was uncredited. Yeah. So, so I mean, he, yeah, he was, he was trying to break into the scene. I guess he did a little bit. If that if that's the case, then yeah. I mean, the unfortunate truth is apparently he was a good enough singer to be like noticed by the Beach Boys. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I but, mean, Hitler painted and Charles Manson sang pop rock. Yeah. Right. Um, Small world. So I I don't know if that's all right. Um. Anyways, so whenever he's he's kind of annoyed that uh the Terry Melcher doesn't live there anymore, so he leaves. Um. There's just kind of this unsettling um, kind of feeling during this scene well, it's the way that he's asking is super duper weird you know like just the, his attitude while mm-hmm. asking it's like okay like why are you still here <laughs> mm-hmm. i did think it was interesting um so also another piece of history roman polanski uh sharon tate's husband uh cannot enter the united states because of a uh well just look up the case that's against him so we don't use terminology that people don't like to hear. Yeah. Uh, anyways. It ain't good. No, it's not. Um, so, but I was glad that he's uh, kind of just a little weirdo and he's barely in it. So I was like, yeah. that's fine. And he's, I think he's like an, like an accurately framed weirdo. Like they mm-hmm. didn't try to like caricature him. He just is a guy like Polanski, not Manson. We've moved on to Roman Polanski. He's just like, he, he doesn't seem like a awful dude at first but just the few scenes he's in he's clearly like an unfriendly person like he's not somebody that yeah. people are going to be friends with is really right. the, the um, vibe you get alright so then Manson leaves and he's not brought up for quite a while right um okay so we move on to um Rick Dalton is guest starring on a show yeah he's playing the villain it is the bro sorry okay yes so Rick Dalton is on set for the pilot of a show called Lancer. Right. Um, and anyways, they, I think they changed the name of it in the film, but it is, it's a real show. Lancer, okay. Lancer is a real show. Okay. Okay. Cool. So anyways, he meets Trudy Frazier. Fraser is a fictional person, a child actress. That's a method acting more or less next to Rick Dalton. Um, weirdly she's like his spiritual guide did you know like that's kind of the role she plays I think movie? it really shows his insecurity of like he she takes it so seriously and he is a very he's a very old school and she's a new school but she takes it so seriously and then whenever he does well in his scene and she's like that's the best acting I've ever seen it brings him to tears yeah well because the first day he shows up super hungover like just right. visibly hungover yeah and that's I don't want to claim that all actors did that, but from what I understand, that wasn't a super uncommon mm-hmm. thing. And even today, it's not uncommon for especially like kind of past their prime, washed up, quote mm-hmm. unquote, actors to show up thinking they can just phone it in and throw in a good performance because, you know, he's Rick Dalton. Right. And she kind of reminds him in their first conversation that, 
you have a job to do and like it's all about the pursuit of like doing the job the pursuit of perfection yeah. of course you won't reach it but it is the pursuit that matters yeah and it's this little eight-year-old girl is like rick dalton's spiritual awakening into his craft where she's like be who you used to be you know right like, do what you used to do um so we kind of have two scenes going on at the same time so we're just going to talk about rick dalton's scene and then we'll go back to a different scene yeah that we keep kind of bouncing back and forth between um, the novel that Rick is reading mirrors his struggles as an actor. He's reading a book about a, uh, uh, what do you call it? A, horse, a bronco buster. A bronco buster. I was going to say a horse breaker, and that wasn't right. A, <laughs> <laughs> a bronco buster who suffers. A glue in, maker. Like. Right, yeah. So he, he suffers an injury, and he's never the same again. So it's kind of showing that he's past his prime, and he has to, he has to come, come to grips with the fact that he's not the best. And that's that's what Rick Dalton is having to do. Yeah, you're no longer like the prime guy, but you right. can still have a career if you just accept that you're yeah. not you're not the hottest he, thing on the market. He had his run uh uh with Bounty Law. That was his most popular show. That was his most popular time. It's passed. Now he's doing these lesser roles. And there's a throwaway line in there that I thought was really important that I happened to catch. And Bounty Law ends because he resigns to chase a movie, mm-hmm. like to be in a movie, and the movie flops. Hmm. is the is so he, he in one of his many like self-hatred rants mm-hmm. he is yelling at himself that he got bounty law canceled all because he wanted to try the movie scene right and he's in a handful of hogan's hero type like you know inglorious bastards type movies and then his career disappears right and so it's in in his self-loathing he's like i am my own worst enemy like i had this great job i had this great show everybody loved me and i canceled it to try to be famous more famous and now I'm less famous than I ever was. Which I think is also, you know, that's relatable because a lot of people don't take, you know, they don't appreciate what they have um, and are always searching for more. That yeah. could be that could be your career. That could be, you know, a lot of things. And think, I mean, even today, in today's Hollywood, think how many people have had successful TV shows and then never had anything right. else. And I don't want to discredit having a successful TV show. It's hard. But, you yeah. know, Drake and Josh are not like marvel stars <laughs> like for yeah. example like you yeah. know a lot of people have one good tv show and then that's kind of it's kind of it um okay so then we get to where rick dalton is acting he's the villain in this uh pilot episode uh everything starts out pretty good and we hear him the night before going over his lines but um, he's drinking the whole time but he's, he's drinking and uh yeah so he gets he gets through probably about the first couple scenes that they're shooting and then when he starts to wrap up the intensity or ramp up the intensity, uh, he starts forgetting his lines a little bit. Yeah, and he does, he never does poorly. Like he always manages to get back into character, mm-hmm. but the guy playing opposite him never breaks. Right. And everybody else in the scene never breaks. And it's his in his mind, and it's kind of alluded to this in the film, it's his last opportunity to get back into mm-hmm. the business. And he worries that he's letting it slip through his fingers. Right. And he talks about not not a, he goes to his trailer and that's actually an improv scene. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, it's completely it's a, imp- completely improvised. And actually, the idea of him forgetting his lines was added by DiCaprio. It was oh, his wow. idea to show the extent of his alcoholism. Wow. And the effects that it's having on him. Um. So that was that's an, an interesting thing, and it does also. You have to look at look at how if you watch that scene, look at how hard he's working. You can see the effort. And uh, how hard he's working and how easy it seems for everybody else. Yeah. So you see how he is just, he's at his boiling point. He goes to his trailer, he's throwing stuff around. He's like, not one more drink, not another drink. 
and then he starts to drink and he throws it out he the throws window. It out the door. Uh, and then he comes back and he's like, he starts talking to himself in the mirrors if he's a different person, which I found really, really funny. Even mm-hmm. though it's very intense, he, like he can't help but laugh because he is screaming at his reflection right. as if it's a different person. Right. Uh, and then he comes back and he kills it. Oh he kills gosh. it and he, he nails does. It. He does great. And that's when uh, the director's a huge fan of it, and the um, the little girl... The director gives him huge props. Well, they all think he does amazing. Yeah. Right? yeah. And he's like, thank you, thank you. And then the girl says, that's the best acting I've ever seen. And he just, like, cries. He yeah. just breaks down. Um, well, and real quick, credit to Leonardo DiCaprio to be an actor, playing an actor, playing a character, mm-hmm. and giving that level of performance, not as yourself, not as the character that you mm-hmm. are portraying, but as a character that your character is portrayed and apparently it was quite challenging for him to, for him to act like an actor who's struggling to act yeah well I, of course it is because he's right. so freaking good at it. well i mean there's so I many mean, layers to it and it is it, it would be one of those one of those characters that's very hard to portray go ask patrick mahomes to act like he doesn't know how to throw a football right you know like that <laughs> no, like no it would be difficult have him act like he's acting like he doesn't know how to throw a football yeah, have him act like he is acting like he's acting like he can't yeah while taylor swift's in the arena right yeah <laughs> okay uh so that scene wraps up. We kind of have a little bit of a redemption arc for Rick Dalton. Um, and then it's on to the celebration. He's going to go to Italy and he's going to end up making like what? Four spaghetti Westerns yeah, in like, in like, six, in like months, six months. Which, I mean, spaghetti Westerns are pretty, pretty thrown together. Yeah. You know? um, I mean, it's kind of a, it's not like a throwaway scene, but we really, we really fast forward through this little, uh, once he has that, that's really the end of his character development. Yeah, he goes to Italy. He comes back, and then we have the finale. Well, we have we have two main character arcs, and then like the side character arc. Right. And so the finale of Rick Dalton's main character arc is that he redeems himself enough to be in spaghetti westerns, make some money, mm-hmm. you know, get his mojo back, mm-hmm. and then he comes back to Hollywood. Yeah. All right. So that is the end of that. Now let's back up a little bit and let's go to where Sharon Tate has her at least. I guess most like character driven scene. Yeah. I don't know. She watches a movie of herself. Well, it's to show the different, I think it's to show the different types of people and like the different goals of people in Hollywood because she, so Sharon Tate, um, most famous for her untimely death, as I'm Mm -hmm. sure most of the people listening to this podcast now, um, was an up and coming actor who had managed to land roles in a lot of pretty well received movies Mm -hmm. with a couple of bigger names in it. And she was just right at the cusp of, maybe breaking through and mm-hmm. becoming, you know, an A-list star when she was murdered. Um, and this movie takes place right as she is in that period of her life. So she is on the main strip, I think, uh, where, the movie, where the movie theaters are. And she mm-hmm. notices a movie during the day, a movie theater a matinee. Is, is playing a matinee of the latest movie that she was just the in. The Wrecking Crew from yeah. 1968. Starring Dean Martin, which is an actual film that Sharon Tate's in, and mm-hmm. the footage that she's watching in the theater is the real movie. It's the real Sharon Tate so on the screen. So she convinces, not convinces, she shows the people that she is in the movie, that she mm-hmm. is Sharon Tate. She points out the character on the poster that she is. They see her and they're like, oh my God, yes. They're like, you can are. you stand over by the poster so we know who you are? Right. And she manages to go picture, in and it becomes clear very quickly that it's not an ego thing it's not like the times rick dalton has referenced Mm -hmm. his own shows or watched it it's not a i want to see how great i am she went to see how well she was received 
by others. Yeah, like whenever she does something and people laugh, it makes her smile. Yeah. Like she's, and it's almost like she's like almost not bewildered, but she's amazed that like, oh my God, this is me. Like, yeah, I'm, like I'm, I'm, I'm in that movie and I'm making people happy, you know? All right. So a little metaphor here, but she's just so happy walking around. She's living a life that, you know, very few of us could even dream of ever having. So I wrote, while watching this, I said, is Sharon Tate's character a metaphor for the blissful ignorance of the fortunate ones in Hollywood at this time, and her real-life tragic ending the audience knows about makes us feel like this is a capsule that is long gone by the present day? You know, that is a really incredibly deep point. Um, I think that, yeah, probably. I don't know what Tarantino was envisioning, but when I watched it, it's Rick and Cliff are the reality of even Mm. Hollywood today, but especially like the tail end of the golden age Mm -hmm. of Hollywood. And Sharon Tate is like what we all want to think it was like. And for a handful of people, yeah, I mean, for a handful of people, it was, it always is. I mean, you you don't just make up those stories. There's always a sample Mm -hmm. that you can take from, but across the board, there are more than likely, there were far more Rick Dalton's and Cliff's than there were Sharon Tate's. Mm -hmm. And it's her, her sheer happiness to just entertain people is what makes it so uplifting because it's just, it's like, Oh, finally somebody who actually cares what the audience thinks and like what she's bringing to others, not Mm -hmm. what her movie gives to her sort of deal. Now we're going to see the flip side of that. Yeah. So we have the love of Hollywood. We have the glory of Hollywood. Now we're going to see the the, sheer necessity of needing a job. Well, further than that, even we're going to see the dark underbelly whenever our other character, Cliff Booth, is going to go visit Spawn Movie Ranch. It's interesting because it's the blue collar side of Hollywood meeting mm-hmm. the underbelly of like hippie counterculture. Right. Uh, it's a fascinating combination. Spawn Movie Ranch was a real location that the Man- Manson family stayed. Um, the Lone Ranger and Bonanza were both shot at this ranch years before it was used by the Manson family. Yep. Um, whenever he shows up, Manson is not there. No. But my goodness... Is there a group of hippies? Oh my god! This is the most star-studded group of hippies of well, all time. One of the hippies that they see in the beginning of the movie, he gives um, a hitchhike ride right. to the ranch, and he's like, "Oh hey, I know the guy who owns that ranch. Right. I might stop by and say hi to him. It's been a while." Well, because he's saying, "Hold on, you're saying a bunch of hippies are staying at this ranch, right?" That's where the suspense comes in. Yeah, because it's never spoken. He never says, "I need to go check and make no, sure he's but you okay." Can see the wheels are turning, and yeah. he's like, "Hmm." Well, and obviously, so I think something that's kind of downplayed in this movie is the fact that uh you know it's such a i shouldn't say everyone so many people know the story of what happened that a lot of it is unspoken yeah so it's it's only ever mentioned that this is the manson family but if you know Mm -hmm. like the name spawn ranch or if you are even aware of like how the manson family lived and where Mm -hmm. they operated it becomes really clear really quickly that that's who they are (laughs) So we're gonna see we're gonna see a very star-studded group of hippies here. We have uh, Elvis himself, Austin Butler. Oh yeah. We have Sydney Sweeney from Euphoria. Yep. Mikey Madison, which for most people nobody would care, but she is in Scream Five. Of so, course, she would know. Of that. course, I care. You probably uh, recognized her on site. I did. You? Oh my uh, god. Maya Hawk. Scream Five, folks. Not even Scream, scream One. No, Scream Five. Which no, is, Scream Five. The one that nobody like, likes, nobody watched. No, a lot of people like it, but I personally don't like it. Mm, never mind. The one that he doesn't like, but he recognizes the actress anyway. I did recognize her. Okay. You have a problem. <laughs> I might. We'll get to that in a different episode. Maya Hawk um, from Stranger Things. Um, hey. Daniel Harris from Halloween 4 and 5. Uh, and Dakota Fanning, who is a child actress from War of the Worlds and Man on Fire. 
that's a whole lot of talent. To that's bring a to lot like of talent. A sidestep hippie Manson family scene. A lot of talent and very little shoes. And, but it pays off. I mean, it does. <sighs> uh, and you know, I really feel like they capture, um, as someone who kind of not, I didn't ever live like a full on hippie, but as someone who per partaked, partook, partaked. <laughs> Partake? Is it partook? It's partook, yeah. Partook? I don't think I've ever said that word before. The past tense of partake. You could also just say, like, you know, engaged has, in... Has partaken. Oh no, God. I wanted partake okay. to be my word. Dustin okay. done partaked for I done culture. Par- I done partaked. Uh, anyways, moving on. Jesus uh, really captures the whole, like, hanging out doing a whole lot of nothing that went, in, went into a lot of, lot of wasted days. Well, hey, two of them are my weeding horse rides. Uh, yeah. Texting for two people, who's who? How are they making money off of this? You know, but that's a real thing that the Manson family did. Is that's no how they maintained their cover? And I mean, you still got to buy food. You can only scavenge so much. From Boosting a lot of cars. Yeah. Too, so right? they. Uh, that's what they did. Um. But the ranch is shockingly empty. Like for people who are running a mm-hmm. horse business in real history, it's because they shortly after being accepted in the original group of the Manson family, including Tex, I believe. Um, kills the people who run the ranch, like mm. the new horse ranch part of mm. Spawn Ranch. And that, much like the stuntman that they kill later, is not discovered until a decade later. Right. Um, yeah, so that's not... I mean, you can tell some seedy things are going on here, but um, not really. nothing's really explicitly told, said or shown on screen. Instead, we have uh, some goofball stabs cliff's tire oh yeah and there is a great there's a great little uh spot in here where he walks over he punches him in the face feet go flying blood splatters out of his mouth he punches him again he pits him up this group of horrified hippies who have never seen such violence in their you know very pampered lives this is the man who was going to beat bruce lee in a street fight mind you so he looks over at this group and he goes ladies and he punches him a third time and then he makes him change the and then he said he makes him change the tire it's anyways so good so then he and then he gets out right as tet shows up um narrowly escaping more or less okay yeah now, it's implied the text is a bad like a bad bad dude yeah because he as soon as they get suspicious of cliff they're like go get tex and he'll handle it and you're like oh god okay yeah so tex is the guy who handles things yeah well i guess when i, I almost looked at him as like second in command when manson's not there yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, so Cliff leaves. Tate's had her, you know, matinee movie showing, and Rick Dalton is redeemed. The two Cliff and Rick Dalton come back from um come back from Italy from making some spaghetti westerns. They're having one last hurrah. Yep, because, because Dalton can't afford to pay Cliff mm-hmm. anymore. Um because he got a wife in Italy. Got a wife. And he spent a lot of Francesca. money from his movies living the high life in Italy. So he's coming yeah. back with enough money to be okay. Yeah. But they're going to have to sell their house, downsize, you know, yeah. um, maybe get into like advertising or something. So mm-hmm. he can't afford a stuntman anymore is the long and the short of it. So anyway, so this is our last hurrah. And in real life, this is when the Tate murders yeah, take place. Yeah, so in real life, it's the same night that Sharon Tate and her friends and Sebring get mm. murdered by the Manson, members of the Manson family. Right. Um, but boy, did they get the wrong house on this night. Yeah, well, um, it's funny how the nights parallel because Sharon Tate's crew go out to have a pretty docile, just gentle mm-hmm. like dinner, and Cliff 
and Rick Dalton go out to get absolutely hammered. So drunk that they have to take a cab they home. Get, yeah, and in the 60s, in that's 19, a big deal. <laughs> in 1969, they have to take a cab From home. From what I understand, the standards of driving intoxicated were different then. I would sh- I would sure hope they've changed Yeah, <laughs> but also, years. you know, I think it speaks to how drunk they were, because we've mm. all met, most drunk people think they can drive mm. up until they are really drunk. And right. If the drunk person is telling you they can't drive, they are gone. And I don't see, I don't see these two characters being the responsible ones in the room. Based off of how they drove for the rest of the movie sober? No. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Uh, But they get super drunk. At the same time, the Sharon Tate and her friends are having a pretty low-key dinner. Yep. Um, <laughs> so these hippies show up in their car their, that's barely their, running. Their gremlin mobile. <laughs> and, and Rick Dalton comes out. With a with a drinking hand, drunk as a skunk, with in a margarita robe, pitcher in his hand, and he says, "You dirty hippies, get out of here! <laughs> I will call the cops if I see you." This again. is a private road. Uh, anyway, so they're kid to they're kid to the literal curb, and they oh yeah, they come up with knives, and Tex has a gun. Yep. Well, and they were scoping; they were actively scoping Sharon Tate's house. Right. But Rick comes out, and a he almost gets shot by mm-hmm. Tex, like Tex thinks about it real mm-hmm. hard. And then as they as he leaves and they're making fun of him, one of the other members of the Manson family is like, well, what if we kill him? Because right. he's she recognizes him. He's from Bounty Law, which like, ironically is still what he's recognized from. He's yeah. done all these other things. He's been in all these been in all these TV shows. Uh and he's still recognized from Bounty Law. Yep. And uh so she's like he's and they all recognize him and she's like, these are the people who taught us to kill. Like our whole our whole culture is about violence and killing. Mm-hmm. So why don't we kill the people who taught us how? And they're like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Oh yeah, for hippie philosophical. So one of them chickens out as they're walking up yeah. to the house. But the other three, two of them have knives, and uh, Tex has a revolver, and yeah. they walk up to the house, which is pretty much exactly the weaponry that they actually had when in real life they murdered Charity mm-hmm. and her group. Uh yeah, so they break into the house. Cliff has smoked a acid dripped or acid dipped cigarette, Cliff and he's like, "Are you real?" High, <laughs> Dude is so high he couldn't get his dog dog food out of the can for his dog. He was struggling. Uh, he was having a rough time. He's having yeah. So, anyways, um, he just starts laughing at him. Uh, yeah. So he's like, "Are you real? Who are you? I know, I know you." And Tetsu goes, "I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business." And he goes, "No, nah, it was dumber than that." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, anyways, and then the star of the movie, Brandy, te- uh, Cliff's, dog. Cliff's dog, uh, bites Tetsu's well, arm. Well, he signals her. Like yeah. he he pieces together what's happening. They get Rick Dalton's wife out of the house, and mm-hmm. as soon as they're all focused on Cliff, he signals his dog, and his dog just pounces. His, yeah. The dog uh, takes out Tets. He takes out one of the other ones with a the the can of dog food. Blinds her. Just, well, smashes her nose in. Yeah, it's just dude, it's so funny. It's so over the top. This is the part of the movie where I quit liking it. Just just to clarify, really, this is the part of the movie where I tapped out. I was like, all right, okay. So anyway, if you take this, I really look at, and a lot of people there's there's even I was telling I was telling my fiance about this when we watched it. I said, there's actually, there's conspiracies that the Manson murders were set up by the CIA or FBI to end the counterculture movement. Now, obviously, it's never been proven, and that's, right. like I said, conspiracy. But if you take it from not necessarily saying, oh, that's what really happened, but if you take it from a perspective of these jackasses ruined 
not ruined, but put a dark stain on this golden time in Hollywood and put a dark stain on, you know, this great part of American culture, you, you're kind of angry at them. You're like, you know what? We had something good and you freaking ruined it. And, you know, yeah. And, and a lot of it, in reality, a lot of the hippie movement was just brought down by the inevitable like more and more people agreed with part of what they stood for. And so they became less iconic. And they just got incorporated back into mainstream culture. Right. Like part of the reason the 70s look like and are like the 70s were is because mm-hmm. hippie culture just kind of gets like mixed with the with the middle class like stand up, quote unquote, like culture that it opposed. And then you get most of the 1970s. But I think this is this is the turning point from the hippie movement into the kind of rebellious anti-war 70s which is ironic go from the 60s to the 70s this is also here. clearly when anybody na- not named quentin tarantino lost all say in how the movie goes yeah so um back to back to the slaughter. so that so what happens is you have um you have texts and you have these two other i don't remember their names i should have written their i bet i, I look them up real quick i mean honestly they're they're the other they're the other two hippies yeah um one of them stabs cliff in the ass um, yeah, stabs him right in the butt. Uh, and this is when, <laughs> when it's in real life, it's Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel. But they all in the movie, they all have different names that they very possibly mm-hmm. had in the Manson family. But and, those are the people who actually are there in real life. One of them did turn away. Yeah, but right? she just stood guard. She didn't run away. She oh, just she didn't actually street. leave. Leave. I got you. Okay, but it was probably. My guess is she got cold feet and she was like, I'll just watch the house. You know? Right. Uh, anyways, so, um, so Texas didn't, you know, demolished by this, uh, by this dog. Uh, the other one's getting her face basically just smashed in. Yeah. Well, um, cause Cliff is just eviscerating right. her. <laughs> Smashing her head into literally anything and everything yeah. you can find. And then she's very clearly dead and then he keeps doing it. He just keeps going. Yeah. Uh, but he's tripping, so yeah, maybe I mean, he, he didn't is, know. He is super high on LSD. Uh, and then you have, while all of this is happening, Rick Dalton with his headphones on, chilling in the chilling pool, in his pool. Uh, with his radio right next to it, which I was like, <laughs> is that not going to electrocute you? Yeah, um, it's fine, whatever. So I think it's battery powered. Yeah. It's not plugged in, so I think that's... Well, that, that wouldn't electrocute you if it's, if it's battery powered. I don't know. I'm sure I've heard enough people drop their phones in bathtubs and like, I guess it just depends. Point being, it's not a good idea. Don't it's not take a good your, idea. Don't take your battery power radio into the pool. But anyways, so it goes into the pool and no one gets electrocuted. But somebody does get freaking burnt to a crisp with a flamethrower. Yes, because there was a throwaway line two and a half hours earlier in the movie mm-hmm. that he got to use a flamethrower in one of his World War II movies. Well, there's a little scene and that he actually used it like it was him using the flamethrower. This is a pretty well-known little side side note but i'll say it anyways the scene where he's using and like test footage fake test footage of him using the um flamethrower uh he's like oh man can we do is there anything we can do about that heat and that's actually leonardo dicaprio like he's not acting he's like he's asking for real and the guy's like it's a flamethrower so freaking funny so it's it's a flamethrower and he goes oh yeah yeah Yeah. uh but anyways that's that's a legitimate line um also i liked how you know, this came out after *Inglorious Bastards*, but him using a flamethrower on a group of Nazis oh, in yeah. a movie starring Brad Pitt—oh, just scratches every itch. You know? It's oh, so great. We need so, to, we need *Inglorious Bastards* too, starring yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio. So the hippies are dead, and they're killed viciously. Yeah. So he burns her in a pool. Ironically, yeah. in *Scream 5*. Spoiler alert: If you haven't seen *Scream 5*. 
Also how she dies. Also how she dies in that movie. Uh, She just burnt. Original. Yes. (laughs) So they're all dead. Cliff uh, goes into an ambulance. He's kind of giving a statement, but he's still tripping. So he, you know... He's useless, and then Rick Dalton is like, "I didn't see anything." This right. crazy woman, this crazy woman, came just out firing her. a gun because she picks up Texas. Oh gun yeah, she has the gun, but the she air. can't see anything because he's yeah. blinded her by throwing dog food in her face. Right, so she's blind and her nose is broken, and then she's like half drowning in the pool because she's blind. She falls right. into the pool, and then he, you know, lights her on fire, and he offers Rick Dalton offers to go to the hospital with Cliff, who got stabbed in the thigh, and he's like, "I'll be that fine. is not thigh." That is ass. Okay, stabbed in the ass. <laughs> Apparently, that's a very important thing for Dustin. It is. It's important because the the femoral artery, if he'd been stabbed on the other side of his leg. Isn't it femoral? 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 Femoral artery? <laughs> but anyway, he gets stabbed in the upper pelvic region of his body. Hmm. That help you out? Is that okay? No, I don't like it. And <laughs> Rick Dalton's like, buddy, I will go to the hospital with you. And he's like, no, don't worry about it. I'm fine. And Go take care of that expensive wife of yours. So... <laughs> They leave. Rick Dalton's kind of just like ramp, like walking around because mm-hmm. you know all these people just still got in murdered. his robe. Yeah, in his robe. I'm pretty still sure drunk. I'm sure. And he um, walks by Sharon Tate's house, and Sebring comes out, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Hey, man, what the hell was that? Like, yeah. we heard all these screams." And he explains it, and he goes, "Oh, damn." He explains it in the most like. I really don't even know. Just he's like, like, there's some hippies broke into non-pl- my house. Well, because he doesn't really know what happened. He's like, he's like those hippies, I ran them off earlier, and then they came he, back, and he she burst it, through my door. He and, explains it exactly like you would explain it if you had been sitting in your pool listening to the radio, and then you walked into your house, and there were these two dead bodies, and your best friend had been stabbed with a knife. He's just like, out. these crazy hippies came in, and um, I burned one to death, and the other yeah. two... Uh, my friend killed because I guess they were trying to kill us. <laughs> he goes, yeah, I had that flamethrower. And he's like, oh, from your World War II movie. And he's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, I still have it. It still works, apparently. And then uh, Sharon Tate gets on the intercom and she's like, hey, Jay, are, are we good? Like, is everything okay? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, no, they're fine. The hippies, the hippies are dead. You know, it's fine. Yeah. It was a break in. But Rick Dalton's here. And she goes, Rick Dalton from that TV show? From Bounty Law. From Bounty Law. Again, all, all that anyone knows him from. And he goes, yeah, hi, Sharon. She goes, oh my gosh, that sounds so terrible. Would you like to come in? And come in and have some drinks? Have some He's drinks. already been plastered all night. And he goes, <laughs> I would like that. Yeah. And so that's the end of the movie. That's the end of the movie. <laughs> and him it, going to have drinks with the still alive Sharon Tate. And he mentions earlier that he's like one dinner party away from starring in a Polanski movie. So it's implied that that he may that find greater happens. success after as a result of this. Um. Okay. Ugh. There's the movie, man. <laughs> That's it. So you you texted me when you finished this, and you said, "What the f was that?" So okay. Um, I it's hard to do a history section of this movie like I've done with the other ones because it's not other than the Tate murders and just the references to the Manson family. Mm-hmm. It's not really about like a historical thing. There are lots of things in there that yeah. are historically well, there's accurate. Lots of cultural history. Like I really like the way the the three different ways they portrayed like mm-hmm. existing in the golden age of hollywood right. i thought that was really good yeah um i think the attention to detail in props and vehicles and movie stylings is great i love that rick dalton has an issue with spaghetti westerns and he thinks that they're crap movies because if you've ever objectively watched a spaghetti western they are not high quality they're good everyone speaks in their own language and then it's dubbed over later um and and clint eastwood for example really got his start in spaghetti westerns so good Mm -hmm. actors did come out of them he was also fun fact clint eastwood also starred in a show called rawhide which was during the 60s and was part of this 
uh, Western genre of television that you know dominated yeah dominated the top charts and he, during this time and he has no way of knowing that spaghetti westerns become like cult classics right like that 50 years after he's dead mm-hmm. people are gonna love the movies is in because they're so crunchy and weird um so that was good i like the idea of incorporating all these people casually so mm-hmm. i love that bruce lee has a moment mm-hmm. in it i love that steve mcqueen has a moment in it i i like the sharon tate is who they chose and i like that it's vaguely framed around the manson uh, the, the Sharon Tate murders by the Manson mm. family. Um, I like the portrayal. I like the, for me, the movie does not equal the sum of its parts. Like I the, like all the parts of the movie and then put together. I'm like, what did I The just characters watch? were real and the story was, you know, fiction. Yeah. And like Rick Dalton and Cliff are completely fictional. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean like a lot of the people in everybody it. else that they encounter is either real or based off a real person. Yeah. Um, so even the, what I liked is even the fight between Cliff and Bruce Lee is mm-hmm. based off of Bruce Lee. In real life, it was more of a joke um, mm-hmm. than it was an actual encounter. But on the set of Green Hornet, Bruce Lee was talking shit to the stuntmen. Mm. And he was like, I could take all of you. And one of them was just this big burly dude who for the rest of like that production run of Green Hornet would fireman carry Bruce Lee everywhere just to prove a point that he may be a bad, bad man, but he's still a very small man. <laughs> Interesting. But it was, more, it was more of a friendly like joke. It wasn't like an antagonistic thing. Right. But the fact that Quentin Tarantino did his research and kind of altered these moments to his movie, it's just that in my mind, if you're going to make historical fiction, like historical fiction has to be plausible to be powerful. Mm-hmm. And he kind of lost that when right at the very end right at the end (laughs) well when the when the tate murder doesn't happen at all like it'd be one thing if it almost happened and then like rick dalton and cliff are there Mm -hmm. or go over for a dinner party like it was so close Mm -hmm. and because he just completely shifts the focus away from it i think it loses a lot of the a lot of the power of the what if uh in my mind you know Maybe, that probably bothers you more than it bothers me. Yeah, well, because like historically, like, yeah, I mean, what if a Navy SEAL and his drunk buddy with a flamethrower lived next to everybody who'd ever been murdered and distracted? You know, like, it yeah. was, to me, it was just he had put so much work into the rest of it that that just felt historically, it just felt lazy to me. I think it's the best way I can describe it. I almost feel like he was like, at the end, he's like, we're just gonna have fun with it. I think he just ran out. I literally just think he ran, he ran out of juice. Like, well, what are you was, gonna do? How would you end it? How else would you end it? Well, I don't know. I, well, and that's the thing. I would. I would try to keep it closer to what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, like, let me put it this way. You have a redemption arc for Rick Dalton mm-hmm. internally, but you don't really have one for Cliff. Um, you even arguably have one for Sharon Tate in the sense that it's implied, like, the movie says that she doesn't really like Roman Polanski all that much by the end mm-hmm. of the movie. So she gets to, he goes to England or wherever to film a movie. So she gets to spend time with people she actually cares about, right. actually love her. Um, and she survives. So that's kind of her redemption arc. Mm-hmm. But Cliff doesn't get one. Like, he doesn't get to, he doesn't get a chance that he's more than just a thuggy dude who is a well, stuntman. I, I think Cliff gets to prove that he's a, he's a good guy. That, because he's he's basically blacklisted for murdering his wife, which he's he's never admitted to, but we found out he kind of he really did it. But right. uh, he's kind of blacklisted for it, and he gets to prove like, hey, I'm a good person at heart. He checks on an old friend to make sure that they're safe. Uh, you know, I did, I think that's his. I don't know if you'd call it redemption, but that's kind of that's kind of like okay, this is who he is. Yeah, but as a, I, think, as a character. I think that would have been more powerful um, and more historically convenient if it would have been a direct, like, not rescue, but a direct interference with 
the upcoming murder of Sharon Tate as opposed mm. to like a complete and utter right. change of pace. Um, all right, let me get one more fun fact in here before we give our ratings and get out of here. Uh, Sergio, uh, Sergio Corbucci, the director of the fictional spaghetti western that Rick Dalton stars in, Nebraska Jim, yeah. which may possibly be named after a 1966 film called A Gunman Named Nebraska. Uh, anyway, Sergio is a real director. He famously wrote and directed the original Django. Okay. And then obviously, Quentin Tarantino made Django right. Unchained. Right. Uh, before, and then I want to add, like, since there wasn't a whole lot of independent history in this one that I could analyze, and it was just feeding off of what mm-hmm. was good, which is, which is fine. I mean, it's fun for me to do that. I do want to say that one thing I think that they nailed is the detachment of stars during the golden age of Hollywood from the rest of the world mm. and the rest of like society. And the we, fact that even the stuntmen kind of just live this like life apart right. because it's the golden age and that's how they were viewed. And it's also the tail end of the golden age. So you can see it all kind of like crumbling from, at the foundation, but yeah. there's enough left that maybe just maybe you can reclaim this thing. I just thought that was a really good tone. To yeah. like signify, if not the history, the social memory of that era. There's like, a good little piece of that whenever uh, Cliff is driving Rick Dalton's car because Rick Dalton can't drive anymore. Yeah. And he parts this, and I don't remember what the name of the car is or what type of car it but is. He parts but this very high quality car and then he gets into this he gets absolute into his beater. Yeah. <laughs> barely running piece of crap. That he drives like a bat out of hell. Yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah, so it kind of shows that exactly what yeah, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, just the disconnect of, and like Rick Dalton is all concerned about his career and like mm-hmm. if he doesn't have a career... Cliff doesn't have a place to live. Right. So, yeah, I, whether or not you could historically be like actors acted like that, I think it's a great testament to how we remember that era mm-hmm. for sure. And that as aloof as Hollywood stars are now and like as untouchable as they feel, they at least interact with the public mm-hmm. now. And that was not nearly as much of a thing then. Yeah. Social media has definitely broken down that barrier yeah. quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. Rating? Um, historical okay. rating? Yeah. Historical rating. Um, Kind since, of a difficult one. Well, since it's intended to be historical fiction, um, I'm gonna give it. I'll give it a seven because I think that everything except the the fact that Sharon Tate does not get murdered mm-hmm. is is really really good and like mm-hmm. really close. Um, but that being said, I it's the fact that it's so questionable going in, like whether it's going to happen or not, like that Mm kind of takes it away from me because if they were just going to, if they kind of made it clearer from the beginning that it wasn't going to happen, I think the historical part of me would have dealt with it better. But the fact that it not only does it not happen, but it, it, it not happens in like the most unrealistic way humanly possible kind of, kind of takes away from it. And also like the Sharon Tate murder is bigger is, is a bigger moment in American society than it is in American history, but it's a Mm -hmm. big deal because like, they got murdered for no reason. Like the Manson family doesn't even have a reason to do it. They're just like, Oh, we just wanted to show you that we could kill people and make a statement. So again, if it had been, it was, inten- it was originally, originally intended to start a, a quote unquote civil war or See, race war. So the question is always, does Charles Manson want to start it or does he just think it's coming? Mm-hmm. Um, nobody's sure. I'm cool with it not happening because that's the whole purpose of like alternate history or like historical mm-hmm. fiction. It's just the way that it doesn't happen kind of takes away the importance of the Manson family. Because it's one thing if they almost kill this woman or if they try to kill this figure and, you know, they don't succeed or whatever. Or they try to kill the innocence of Hollywood or the, the goldenness of Hollywood and they get stopped. But instead, they try to kill the deadbeat, like, like lackadaisical, like uppity part of Hollywood and get murdered. So for me, it just took away from the historical impact yeah. of what actually happened without replacing it with something else. I think is the best way I can describe it. Um, enjoyment factor. 
uh, I got to give it a six. Like, I, six? Yeah, I'd watch it again. Okay, I will give the first two hours and ten minutes of that movie an eight. Okay. I give the last 20 minutes a four. <laughs> okay, so it bounces <laughs> like, out to a six. I, I did not enjoy the the idea of why they went to his house i didn't enjoy the fight scene i enjoyed it from like a it's a cool fight scene to watch it yeah but like plot wise i didn't like it i thought it was lazy and i'm not a film critic i have no place to say that except my own personal opinion but like i would watch it if like you asked me to or like if yeah. a friend wanted to watch it but i would not watch that movie again of my own like like i wouldn't just put it on and be like i'm gonna watch once upon a time in hollywood <laughs> that's fair um it's not everybody's cup of tea um i definitely liked it more the second time I uh I have been given some the same store for all of our films so far. If you don't give this at least an eight or a six, I'm going to go through that window and like <laughs> make a call, commit. <laughs> I am not gonna give this a seven. Okay. I'm not gonna give this an eight. You're gonna give it a nine. I'm gonna give it an eight point five. Oh my gosh, you did a half. I did a half. Oh so my god. I did I did eight point five. Write this I, down on your calendars, I ladies also, and gentlemen. I also agree. I, I'm just I just get so caught up in it because it is such like it's such a snapshot of the time. Everything yeah. everything that happens in this film is like it's done purposefully. The amount of research, work, and love that went into this is just it's 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 one of those things that's kind of baffling. Yeah. Like you you think of um can one can one person write all this? Can one person yeah. do all this? And it's just it's it's incredible. And you know, I would even opinion. be willing to like up the history rating to an eight just because the portrayal of like the Manson family, like it's of really this, Hollywood. Yeah, like okay, I'll I'll re- I'll take my my loathing of the last twenty minutes out of my history rating a little bit more. I'll give it an eight because you're right, like, an eight. And then, and then, what a negative five? Yeah, probably <laughs> for the last twenty so minutes. The parts, that, the parts that try to be historically accurate are awesome. So I'll go ahead and give it an eight. Like it, okay. It gets really, it gets as close as you can without trying to be like, you know, Fury saving Private Ryan, like something yeah. that is supposed to be a snapshot. Like, yeah, yeah. So okay, so we got yeah, my first, my first non seven, eight point five. Nice. Love this movie. Nice. Um, so moving on to next week. It's Troy, right? Because we're doing our Brad Pitt. We're doing Troy. Double feature. I have not seen it in a long oh. time. No, okay. I've seen it before, but oh. I have not seen it in a long time. Nice. I only remember pieces of it. Um, we'll see what we'll see what happens. Okay. All right. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll be see, back next week. See you next time. Yeah.